Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Gillian, very much indeed. And thank you to the students for um, singing Happy Birthday to me in 15 different African languages last night. That was very special. I think we made so much noise that the local police wondered what was happening. But it was a very good time, and the chocolate cake was delicious. So thank you very much for that. Can I endorse what Amiel said about the Young Adults Outreach on Friday? Um, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, to see this hall full of young adults, um, perhaps hearing the word of God for the first time, and that some of them would join our church family. That would be a terrific thing, wouldn't it? So uh, do please be praying for the event. Do please be thinking out of the box, outside your normal frame of reference, for who you know um, who could come along that night. You might be thinking, well, what's a young adult? I don't know what the age cut-off is. I suppose I'm a bit over the hill, but I don't know, 35, is that it? Something like that? 35 or under, that would be terrific. And then, um, would you please keep your Bible open at the passage that Gillian read? And if you're with us for the first time, I do commend the pink sheet and the questions in it, which we use as the basis for our midweek Bible study. Uh, We have four different groups that meet in our home on Wednesday evening, and I think it is of great profit uh, to go through the passage again and answer these questions, because it's a terrific way to make sure I have understood what God was saying on Sunday morning. So uh, keep the white bulletin open, please, with the outline, and Romans 8 open in front of you, and without further ado, I will pray. Well, Heavenly Father, as we come to this great passage, we have a sense that we are standing on holy ground. These are great words. And so we need the gift of special concentration. Open not only our physical ears to hear, but the inner ear of our hearts to obey. Please give clarity to speaker and listener alike. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as I was preparing this talk, I I came across the the last words of a dying man to his friend. Uh, He lived and died in the third century, so that's about 1800 years ago. But his message is so up to date that he might have written these words yesterday. This is what he said. It is a bad world an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are Christians, and I am one of them. The last words of a dying man to his friends. I think very moving words, a very moving testimony. Because you see, this man, he looked at the Christian community in his town or village or wherever it was that he lived, and he saw that these people had found a joy that was greater than anything this world had to offer. And it was a joy that wasn't diminished in any way by persecution or hostility. And their testimony was so powerful 
that this man gave his life to Christ. And I was uh, personally challenged by this, I think, because it reminded me that the first Christians found joy in circumstances where I think most of us would least expect to find it. Their lives were extremely difficult, but they were confident Christians. Now, I think all of us who call ourselves Christians want the joy that is promised in the Gospel. But the problem, you see, is that a great deal of our Christian lives is spent in the trenches, uh, in the trenches of broken relationships, uh, financial problems, health crises, emotional pain, loneliness, and so on. And uh, in the trenches of daily life, it's very easy, isn't it, for truly converted men and women to forget who they are and to forget where they're going. So I want to begin this morning by inviting you to picture in your mind for a moment a typical church home group. Uh, It's Wednesday evening and they've all gathered, as usual, in the pastor's home. The uh, first person we notice in the group is angry Andre. Um, Andre has been a Christian for many years and he loves his scripture memory verses. One of the first uh, verses he ever memorised was Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And that verse says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But a year ago, uh, Andre's wife was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Last week, he discovered that his medical aid won't cover the hospital bills. And so, um, Andre asked his millionaire brother-in-law if he would come to the party and help, but he refused. And now it looks like Andre is going to have to sell the house. Uh, Andre can't understand for one moment why God has allowed this to happen because he looks around at other Christians who are far less obedient than he is. And he wonders why their lives seem so much easier than his. Andre is a Christian, but he's angry with these comfortable Christians, and he's angry with God. Then, uh, on the other side of the room, there is worldly William. Uh, William was converted in a spectacular way as a young adult at a young adult's outreach. It's now ten years later and uh, his career in advertising has totally taken off and he's adopted a lavish lifestyle to go with it. Uh, William still enjoys uh, Bible study. One of his favourite verses is Romans 8 verse 32. That verse says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And uh, William has uh, always understood that that verse promised the Christian practically anything that he asked for. In fact, his understanding of prayer is that it's a bit like the room service that he enjoys every week in the five-star hotels in Johannesburg. Uh, Everything you need is simply a phone call or a prayer away. 
And until recently, uh, it seemed to William that God really had fulfilled the promise of Romans 8.32 by giving him this marvellous career and so much material blessing. But then just recently, those close to him have noticed a restlessness in William. Uh, He has confided to his prayer partner that he's feeling spiritually empty. William is a Christian, but he feels that God is somehow really rather distant, and he doesn't understand why. And then uh, on the sofa on the other side of the room, uh, there is defeated Dorothy. And uh, Dorothy is sitting there with a box of tissues. She is the hardest working member of the church. She is the first to visit the sick. She attends every single prayer meeting and she serves on every committee. Uh, But from childhood, Dorothy's parents had taught her that a real Christian is somebody who is always 100% of the time victorious over sin. And uh, in family devotions, her dad would often quote Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. That verse says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors. But you see, as she looks at her life, uh, Dorothy sees that although she reads her Bible every single day, and although she knows the kind of life that is pleasing to Almighty God, her own performance often seems to fall a very long way short. So she often feels a lot more like a failure than a conqueror. In fact, she sometimes wonders if she's really a Christian at all. Now, of course, um, Andre and William and Dorothy aren't real people. Uh, And yet, of course, if you're like me, their stories are much closer to home than we might care to admit. They remind us, don't they, that real Christians, uh, people like most of us, can easily get so distracted in the trenches of life that we lose sight of who we are and we forget where we're going. And when that happens to us, well, we need to know where to go to get help, don't we? Well, although our three friends had totally misunderstood Romans chapter 8, nevertheless, rightly understood... Romans 8 is exactly the right medicine for the problem. And by God's grace, over the next four Sunday mornings, I hope to show you why. Because Romans 8 is teaching us how to be confident Christians. That is Paul's purpose in this magnificent chapter. Let me say straight away that confident does not mean smug. It doesn't mean complacent. It doesn't mean self-righteous. God doesn't want us to be any of those things. None of us would want to be in a church with people like that. But Romans 8 is meant to build our confidence because the theme of the whole chapter is the absolute security of the Christian in the face of sin and death. That is the theme of Romans chapter 8. And I think it's extremely realistic because sin and death 
are realities for the Christian just as much as they are for everybody else. But in spite of these things, the Christian can be absolutely confident of the promises of God. Now, with that in mind, please notice the way the chapter begins and the way that the chapter ends. In verse 1, Paul says that a Christian is someone for whom there is now no condemnation. Before he was converted, every day that passed was one day closer to facing the tsunami of death and divine judgment. That's what he deserved. But now that he's run to Christ, he is safe. He no longer has to fear God's righteous condemnation. What a wonderful promise. Then in the last verse, in verse 39, Paul says that for the Christian, there is no separation from the love of God, no matter what happens, and in spite of all the sins that he no doubt will commit, nothing can separate the true Christian from the love of God. Those are magnificent promises. No condemnation, no separation from the love of God. What a difference it would make to our Christian lives if we really believed it. Now everything in between those two statements is there to show us why we can have complete confidence that these things are true and why we can lean our whole lives on them, even when the rest of the world seems to be falling around our ears. Now the first thing that Paul does to build our confidence is to say that we should be convinced of God's verdict. That surely is the message of verse 1. Please put your nose on it. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, how on earth is Paul going to convince us of this? Well, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning uh, looking at the reasons that he gives. Before we do that, let me remind you that Paul spent the first four chapters of the book explaining that by nature, every human being without exception lives their lives without reference to God. That doesn't, by the way, mean that we never think about him. It means rather that although he is our creator and although he's given us life and breath and everything, by nature, you and I do not make him our highest priority. In fact, if the truth be told, we don't make him much of a priority at all. And for that reason, you see, the whole human race stands under God's righteous condemnation. That is God's verdict on the whole human race. But now, all of a sudden, we're told in verse 1 that God has pronounced an utterly different verdict. For some people, there is now no condemnation. 
Who are these fortunate people? Um, Are they the people who've lived an especially virtuous life, always thinking of others, caring for the poor, giving money to charity? No, not them. Are they the people who come to church every Sunday without fail, read their Bibles every morning? No, it's not them either. Is he perhaps talking about pastors and clergy and bishops and people who've been to Bible college? Well, no, not even them. So to whom then does this marvellous verdict apply? Well, Paul is very specific that God's verdict of no condemnation applies to one group of people only. It is for those people who are in Christ Jesus. Now that is a favourite phrase of the Apostle. Um, It's Paul's way of saying that the true Christian is somebody who is under the guardianship of the Lord Jesus. So think about this with me. A guardian is expected to care for a child. They're expected to watch over the child doing everything in their power to protect them so that the child grows up and becomes a mature adult. And in exactly the same way, a real Christian, that is to say, someone who is in Christ Jesus, is being watched over and protected by Jesus so that they grow up and mature and can be absolutely certain of enjoying all the promises of God. So, if I want to know whether this verdict of no condemnation applies to me, and that when I die, I'll be welcomed into heaven as God's friend, well then surely the question I must ask is how can I know whether I am in Christ Jesus or not? How can I know that I really am under his protection and care? Because, you see, sometimes I find that I have exactly the same doubts and struggles as Andre and William and Dorothy. And in those times, quite honestly, I don't feel like much of a Christian at all. So how can I be sure? Paul says it's really very simple. It is all about the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, then you are in Christ Jesus. You are a real Christian. Why do I say that? Well, I say it because in this chapter, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit no less than 20 times. That is more than any other chapter in the whole of the New Testament. And that's because, you see, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is the proof that you are under the guardianship of the Lord Jesus. And it's also the guarantee that all of God's promises are true for you. You can be absolutely confident of them. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul's point is that you can know whether the Holy Spirit really is at work in your life by asking yourself three simple questions. 
And the first question is this. Has he given me a new freedom? And we're sort of focusing in here on verses 1 to 4. Now here in South Africa, of course, freedom is a very big issue indeed. People talk about it constantly. Uh, If anyone or anything threatens our freedom, well, it's all over the newspapers and people get terribly upset. But of course, the, the freedom that makes the headlines is political. It's very important, of course. But there is another freedom that is infinitely more important. And the tragedy is that although South Africa claims to be a Christian country, millions of people here know virtually nothing about it. It's the freedom that Paul describes for us in verse 2. And in verse 2 he says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, in order to understand what this new freedom is all about, we first need to understand that the word law in verse 2 is not a legal word. So please don't be thinking about policemen or courtrooms or judges. Rather, it's the kind of law that we mean when we talk about the law of gravity. Now, when we use that phrase, what does it mean? Well, the law of gravity is describing an invisible power over which we have no control. So, try thinking about verse 2 like this. Uh, Suppose after the service I were to climb on top of the church roof and attempt to defy the law of gravity by stepping off the roof into thin air. Of course, I would have absolutely no power, would I, to do that successfully? You're sure about that, are you? You're looking a bit uncertain. No, the result will always be painful and extremely messy. In the same way, Paul says that in his own life, he's noticed that there is a law of sin and death. What he means is that there is a power within him that is constantly prodding him to turn away from God and to live to please himself. And by himself, Paul cannot control that power. How do we know that? Well, he told us last week. But because we've got short memories, we need to remind ourselves what he said. Come back to chapter 7 and verse 21. Romans 7, verse 21. Paul says, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now remember, won't you, as our brother Amiel said a moment ago, that this is not somebody who was converted last week. 
This is the Apostle Paul. And the point is that by himself, Paul is no more able to resist the law of sin in his life than I am able to defy the law of gravity by leaping off the church roof. Both are equally impossible. And as a result, Paul sees himself as a prisoner. And if that was true for the Apostle Paul, can I humbly suggest it's true for you as well. But Paul says that's not the end of the story. Why not? Because chapter 8, verse 2 There is another law. Through Christ Jesus, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, when Paul became a Christian, God sent the Holy Spirit into Paul's heart so that now the spirit has become the dominating power or principle in his life. And that's what happens in the life of every true Christian. Now that doesn't mean, my friends, that we suddenly become sinlessly perfect. So please don't start thinking like the man who came up to Charles Spurgeon after the uh, Sunday morning service and said, do you know, sir, I am now a completely sinless man, to which Spurgeon replied, oh really, and what does your wife think about that? No, we're not sinless. But the gift of the Holy Spirit does mean that we have a new power to fight sin that we didn't have before. Sin no longer has the last word. The Holy Spirit has set us free for the fight. So my friend, if you are aware that there is a battle against sin, going on in your heart, can I say that that is a very healthy sign that the Holy Spirit really is at work? Yes, the fight is is on. It is a constant struggle. But the fight is not a reason to worry about your salvation. It is a sign that you are a real Christian. And the time to start worrying is if there's no fight at all. And why has God set us free to fight against sin? Well, the answer to that question is, it's all about Jesus. We cannot stress that too much. Because the New Testament never, never, never separates the work of the Holy Spirit from the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 looks back to the cross. And it tells me what it means. That on the cross, God condemned sin in sinful man. Now follow the logic through. You're all intelligent people. This should be easy to understand. What Paul is saying is that our sin has already been condemned. And that's why there is now no condemnation for Christians. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Do you know, those, I think, are the most precious words that you and I can ever hear. No condemnation. 
But then the second question I must ask if I want to know whether the Holy Spirit is at work in me is, has he given me a new mind? Verses 5 to 8. Now, it's very important to realise that when we ask that question, we are not talking about academic ability. Uh, I enjoyed hearing about uh, a university professor recently who worked in the science faculty of a famous university. Um, He had the highest academic qualifications anybody could ever possibly have, but he was an atheist. And then suddenly, um, through the witness of his wife and family, God brought him to faith. And uh, a few months later, he was interviewed and asked about that. And he said, quote, I can hardly believe I was so dumb for so long. That's the man with multiple PhDs. So the new mind of the Christian is not a matter of academic brilliance. Now the issue that's being brought out in verses 5 to 8 is that the way that we use our minds, if you like, our mindset reveals whether we're Christians or not. So verse 5. Verse 5 says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So can you see that the ideas that occupy our minds, the ambitions which make us leap out of bed in the morning, the things that we really like discussing with our friends and family, those things reveal our true nature. They are, if you like, a wide open window into our soul. They're actually a dead giveaway to where we stand before Almighty God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a marvellous comment on this. He says, and I quote, Our minds are never free. There is no such thing as free thought. The difference between a man who is not a Christian and a man who is a Christian is that whereas the non-Christian's mind is controlled by the world, the Christian's mind has been transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And the result is that the Christian man is now able to think in a Christian manner, whereas formerly he could not do so. End quote. So, verses 5 to 8 are actually a very simple description of the tremendous change that the Holy Spirit makes to our mindset when he comes into our lives at conversion. So, please notice, will you, how Paul describes the mindset of the non-Christian. This is actually, I think, rather dark. Verse 5. Verse 5 says that before that great change of conversion, our thoughts and our motives, 
are egotistical because it's all about what we want. Our minds, says Paul, are set on what the sinful nature desires. It's all about me. Verse 6 says that the mind of the unconverted man is spiritually dead. He's got absolutely no understanding of the things of God and he's not in the slightest bit interested in them. Verse 7 says that his mind is hostile to God. He may be uh, charming, may be very well educated, might be marvellous company for a supper party or whatever it is, but as soon as you confront him with the gospel, his hostility comes straight to the surface. He cannot help it. By contrast, those who've been converted to Christ, those who've experienced what we call the new birth, these people have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. They've been woken up to spiritual reality and they've got peace with God. And a complete revolution has taken place in their thinking. And my dear friends, you see, that is another sign that God's verdict of no condemnation applies to them. But again, that doesn't mean that uh, they're living in a perpetual state of victory. Uh, this side of heaven, they live with the tension. And I want to probe that tension with you just a little bit more. Keep a finger in Romans 8 and turn back in your Bible to Psalm 119 on page 435. Psalm 119, page 435. Amy, I read from Psalm 19, but Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are terrific cries of praise for the word of God. And Christians love this psalm for the way it puts into words their love for Holy Scripture. Uh, verse 90, 97 on page 435 is a terrific example. Uh, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law! I meditate on it all day long. That actually is a nice summary of the message of the whole psalm. And it's the cry of somebody who's been given a new mind. But I want you to look with me at how the psalm ends. Turn on two pages, page 437 and verse 176. This is remarkable. Verse 176, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Now that is a very strange, but I think a very honest ending. For 175 verses, it's all about how much he loves God's word. And then right at the very end, he says, Lord, I'm just like a silly sheep. Please go on seeking me. Isn't that true to life? Don't you sometimes feel that? I know I do. So back in Romans chapter 8, and uh, come back there now, the test of verses 5 to 8 
is not whether you're living a life of sinless perfection. No, the question is, has your mind been radically changed? Because this is not something you can do for yourself. It's a miracle of God. Do you delight in God's law? Or can I ask you this? Are you saying to yourself, even this morning, why do we have to look at the Bible in such detail like this? I really don't like this kind of detailed Bible study. My friend, if you are thinking that, that is a sign that you are not yet a Christian. It's a sign that God hasn't yet given you a new mind. So lastly and very briefly, if I want to know whether the Holy Spirit is at work in me, the third question I must ask is, has he given me a new hope? Verses 9 to 11. Now what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, contrary to what many people think, Christianity is not a set of ideas that are going to help me feel better about myself or to help me be more successful. It's not that. No, Christianity stands on the historical event of the death of Jesus as our substitute bearing the punishment for sin and it stands on the historical event of his resurrection from death as proof that his sacrifice was sufficient for sin. Now you might be thinking, well hang on a moment Simon, what about me because I know that I'm still going to die. And that's true. Unless Jesus returns first, your body will die. But look with me carefully at verse 11. Verse 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now you see, what's he saying? He's saying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is not just the sign that the penalty for your sin has been paid in full, although it is that. No, the resurrection of Jesus is also the pattern of your future. And that changes everything, doesn't it? We've had uh, a number of funerals in our church fellowship recently. Uh, Think of Gerald, Patrick, uh, Mar Millie. A couple of years ago, of course, there was dear Corrie. All people that we've known and loved. And let's not be silly about this. Funerals are sad occasions. We find it very hard, don't we, at a funeral to imagine our lives without these people. But each of those names that I've mentioned, those people were Christians. And so you see, the message of verse 11 eventually breaks through our grief and gives us comfort. 
because it tells us, you see, that the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is going to give life to the bodies of our departed brothers and sisters. By the way, they will be recognisably the same people, just as the Lord Jesus was when he rose. So one day we will be able to say, oh, hello, Patrick. Hello, Millie. It's lovely to see you. And their body, you see, will be the perfect vehicle for a person who has been delivered from God's condemnation and made perfect by grace. What a wonderful saviour. What an amazing hope. And we'll say more about that hope next week. But for now, let's pray. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this precious promise. We would have no hope without it. And our hearts overflow with praise. We ask that you would open our eyes to grasp afresh the significance of the cross of Christ. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would grant to each one of us the confidence in your salvation that you want every one of your dear children to enjoy. May it be our strength and shield in every trial and test. And when others ask us for the secret of our joy, please make us bold to tell them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.